this as him taking uh, our lives in his hand, blessing, breaking, and giving for the life of the world. That's what he does. Over the past few weeks, we have talked about how difficult it is to imagine being ordinary. Um, it, it, it seems that our lives are so common. How in the world can we be blessed and sacred and holy if we're just who we are? We've talked about that as we've explored our sin and our suffering, what we experience in this life. Uh, we've talked about how we feel broken and that sometimes that feeling makes us feel disqualified to be able to do anything in this life or have anything to offer. Yet when we surrender our... We're going to have to go to this. Uh, we are blessed by having our identity recovered, restored, we said restored in one week, and our brokenness becomes openness to God's grace. But there's one more word in this series that we look at today. This week, I want to talk to you about the word given. But what if you don't feel like, or maybe you sense there's nothing in your life to give? Maybe you think that purpose is connected with value. It's not. If you're just an ordinary Christian, is there really anything to give from your life? I want you to turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 24, verses 30 through 32, and stand in honor of reading God's word as we look at that today. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open our hearts and our eyes like you did on those on the road of Emmaus. As we sit here today with Jesus, and how appropriate is it that we will celebrate the Lord's Supper as we complete this series today on being given? You gave yourself, and now you look for us to do the same. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. This is the uh, third story uh, of Blessed Broken Given. It's the story, in, at least in Luke's gospel, where he he uses these stories to explain Jesus' ministry. The third time Jesus takes the bread in his hands, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it. It is a moment of mission. It's a moment that he's trying to teach something to these disillusioned people. Jesus blesses the bread, opens the eyes of the people who were disillusioned and downcast. They were sad. They were sorry because of what had happened with Jesus on the cross, and they saw their hope gone. I think, in a way, this story shows that being blessed and broken and given is for the sake of the world, not just ourselves, not even for the church. It's for the world that Jesus came. What does it mean, then, to be given? What does that mean for us? 
I think there's several layers, and what I want to do is highlight some of those as we look at today. Three things I want to look at. Number one, the first point, to be given is to be spent out of love for Jesus. To be given is to be spent out of love for Jesus. Before we talk about what it means to be given, I think we need to ask, why? (laughs) Why allow myself to be given? Why, Why would I give myself to you or to the world? Why would I allow myself to be given for another? I think the obvious answer most of us would say is love. We give ourselves out of a sense of love. But what do we love in order to be given? I mean, if I give myself out of a sense of love, if love is the answer, what am I giving myself to? Again, I think the the answer is obvious. It's the person whom you are serving. It's the person whom you're serving. So if I love my children, I will give myself to my children. I will experience giving myself away so that they may experience love. If you love poor, the poor, then you're going to give yourself to people who are poor, people who are in need. You're going to use that as your motivation to be given I'm going to use that either for children or for whatever your motive is. It's to the people or the person that you serve. I think that's the obvious answer, but I don't think it is the answer. I think it's wrong. At least I think it's incomplete. Frankly, I think it's insufficient as well. Not just enough to love a thing or a person. It's not enough to sustain us. It's not enough to carry us through those lonely and dark hours that motivate us to reach out to people, especially people, the very ones we're trying to help, who seem to hate us sometimes, wrestle with us when we're trying to love them. What motivates me? What keeps me moving? Is it my love for them? Sometimes they're so hateful to me, it's easy to withdraw that love, isn't it? And not want to love them. It's just not quite enough motivation to keep us going. If you don't believe me, let's look at Peter. In your mind or in your Bible, turn to John 21. You can read it up here on the screen as well. 15 through 18. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verily, Jesus went on in verse 18 to say, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. When you're old, you will stretch forth your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. We look at Peter in and, and, and this experience. After the resurrection, you know the story. Jesus uh, is, is coming back. He's, he's appearing to the disciples in different places and different locations. But Peter is tired of waiting, so he goes back to fishing. 
He leaves what he was doing and goes to fishing. Think about it. He ran into the tomb and the tomb was empty. He saw the grave clothes. And if you read in John, you saw that they, it was like Jesus' body just disappeared out of them and they collapsed. And then over to the side is this folded head napkin to show that Jesus is bodily alive. He saw that. He was most likely with the other disciples when Jesus appeared in the other places because it says he appeared to the disciples. And if one was missing, like Thomas, the Bible tells us that somebody was gone from that meeting. So he was probably there with all the disciples and all the meetings. And I'm going to guess that he was there with Thomas when Jesus appeared and said, Hey, Thomas, here, look. Look at the, look at the, look at the scars. Put your hands here. Peter was there when that happened. And yet he went back to his old livelihood. He went back to the way that he was before. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know that, uh, that we have an insight, but I, I can guess maybe, maybe he felt lost. Maybe he felt that that night when he denied Jesus, he lost something. I don't know. Maybe he felt too confused about what the resurrection really meant. He thought he understood what he was doing with Jesus. Then Jesus died and he was resurrected. Now I'm a little confused. What does this mean for me now? What am I supposed to do? Jesus is not with me. How do I live? How do I operate? I've been following around for three years. Now what do I do? I think he might have been a little confused. Maybe it, it was too covered in shame because he had denied him three times to understand what he should do. He just felt shameful. You've, you've met people like that. They, they feel ashamed and they withdraw from everyone. It's the shame that they feel. Maybe that's what it was. He might as well try to live out a quiet life, a smaller story, if you will, from what Jesus had prepared for him. But John describes how that Jesus found Peter and what he did in that moment. He kind of reacted, reenacted the, the first time that he met Peter when he called him to be a fisher of men. The story goes that he sees the disciples and tells them to throw their net on the other side of the boat. And the vo voice called from shore to tell them to do that. Peter didn't initially recognize uh, Jesus. If you remember, it, it was John who recognized him and said, It is the Lord. But it was Peter who reacted first. He stripped himself down and he swam to shore. Immediately, he went to the Lord. He threw his robes off. And while the others dragged the fish to shore, he was there trying to reach Jesus. I, I think there's been a lot of exploration and nuances when we talk about the Savior and the disciples at this point, what was going on. But I think this whole story is about Jesus trying to reinstate Peter, to put him back where he was supposed to be. I think he was trying to reaffirm Peter. Peter, I still believe in you. I still have faith in you. I still have a plan for you. It's not changed. And I think the three repetitions, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Was a way in which Jesus wanted to 
correspond to that threefold denial. I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. I think it's significant. But I think some other things are, are there that are kind of hidden in plain sight. Let me pull those out for you. In this restorative, call-renewing conversation, Jesus asked Peter simply, repetitively, and piercingly, do you love me? He did not say, do you love the sheep? He did not say, do you love the food, meaning the teachings of Jesus? He did not say, do you love yourself? He also did not say, do you love the purpose and the mission? Finally, he did not say, what? He did say, do you love me? That's what he said. Not all these other things. Do you love me more than these And when Jesus went these, he wasn't, I believe, saying just the disciples that were around him, but all of this. What do you love? Who do you love? In the other gospel accounts, Peter's first call, Jesus said, Peter, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. You might say that first call was about purpose. Follow me, and I will make you a fisherman, a fisher of men. That's purpose. In essence, Jesus said, Peter, I'll lift you up from the life that you have right now, which is going nowhere. I'll sweep you into the greatest story that's ever been. I'll give you a role in the kingdom that is arriving right now is earth, heaven on earth is with us. I'll make you a participant, not a recipient. You get to participate not just get in this story. That's, I think, after all, what it means to be given, to be a participant. But it isn't the love of being given that leads to our openness. It isn't the love of purpose that sustains us in those dark hours. In the end, it was not enough to keep Peter faithful. He had purpose, but he didn't stick with it, did he? He went back to fishing. What? keeps us to the call it's not even the love of the call even loving the call will not keep you from falling we've seen that in many ministers lives if peter's first call was about purpose his second call this renewal of destiny and identity was about a person a person do you love jesus That's what it's about. Do you love Jesus above everything else? Lesser loves may lead you into following or even entering vocational ministry. I remember when I I surrendered to preach, people in the church I was at came up and said, we always knew you'd be a preacher, and they'd say things like, you like to talk so much. (laughs) Like loquacity, you know, being loquacious, talking a whole lot made me, qualified me to be a minister. Well, that may be true for some organizations, but it's really not a great call. Not really a call at all. Those things can't sustain you. They didn't, Peter. They won't keep you on the purpose. The love of meaning, the love of mission, the love of purpose, or even the love of the church will not keep you from pulling away when things get difficult. Surrendering your life, serving others, none of it keeps you there. It's only a deep, an abiding love for Jesus that can do it. 
That's the motivation. That's the pull. That's the call. Serving him, loving him. It's our love for Jesus that leads us to surrender to him in the first place. And it's Jesus who gives us a way to others. He's the one doing it, not us. If we surrender our love to him, we surrender all. We sing that song, you know, I surrender all. We find ourselves not needing to beg any longer for meaning or purpose or motivation or sustenance. He gives it to us. Our surrender makes us bread in the hands of Jesus to be broken and be handed out and given to the world. He sends us and spends us because of his love for us and the love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. And now he's giving you. He's sending us. And that sending is sweeter than you could ever have dreamed or imagined. And it's how we become given for the life of the world. Number two, to be given is to live for the life of the world. To be given is to live for the life of the world. On the way to the road to Emmaus, here are these two disciples. If they're not among the 12, they certainly were among the big group. We're not really told their names. We don't know. They could have been one of the 12 disciples. They could have been that big group that was following Jesus that were called disciples. They weren't actually apostles, but they were following him. They had hung their head. Their eyes were heavy with tears. They were sad and depressed. Unable to quench the fire of their disappointment, they, they turned to each other arguing and debating over who the Messiah was and if Jesus really was this Messiah. And it was at that moment that Jesus himself, the Bible says, arrived and joined them on their journey, Luke twenty four fifteen. Jesus joined the disappointed and the disillusioned in their journey. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't say like he did the first time with Peter. Uh, what he didn't say with these guys was something like, hey, come here, over here to me. Come to me. Come follow me. He didn't say that. Not this time. No, that was all in well and good for the first time. But not this time. Not when their faith had been shattered. When they had been destroyed, they had been broken. They were too weak. They were too broken to come to Jesus. He comes to us in those moments. He reaches out for us. He himself joins us on our journey of disillusionment and draws us with hope. We need to listen and learn and enter into the place of pain in the communities in which we live, for those who are in pain. Like Jesus coming alongside the disillusioned disciples, we need to walk gently into the spaces where the de-churched and post-Christian people live who won't walk into a congregation. Jesus pointed himself as the culmination of God's saving story when he retold the Old Testament. After asking them what, it, what they were talking about and acting ignorant like he, he didn't know what had happened the past few weeks in Jerusalem, Jesus began to explain to them from the law and the prophets, the Bible says, 
who the Messiah would be and how he would suffer and how he would be raised up. You can look at 24, verse 27 about that. They had been reading the scriptures wrong. They were looking at it incorrectly. Before they could recover from that shift, Jesus went on to another one. He showed them how the scriptures spoke of him, the Messiah. We have to find a way to tell the story to the world in a way that's their own story, to retell how they fit into the scriptures. It has to be Christ-centered, most certainly. That's how Jesus did it. But he included them in the story. He drew them in by the telling of the story. Then they, when they reached Emmaus, uh, Jesus decided to act like he would go on a little farther just to see if they were curious enough, just to see if they were awake enough, just to see that they were hungry enough to want him to tell more of the story. And so he waited. And they said, stay with us, the scripture says. It's, it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. It was the hospitality to this stranger that became a game changer for them. You see, Jesus demonstrated a kind of radical hospitality. What do I mean by that? Well, after Jesus accepted their offer, he then, the stranger in their midst, did something even stranger, if you will. What Jesus did as the guest, he started acting like the host of the meal. How do I say that? Well, it's the way that Jesus took the bread and blessed it and began to hand it out. That's not normal. Um, that means nothing to us probably because we don't have dinner protocols necessarily. Some people have no protocol at all. You see them sit down at the table and they just start grabbing, right? I mean, it's like first every man for himself. Maybe you've been to a place where you pray over the meal and you stop and everybody's staring at you wondering why you're not doing anything and it's because you always pray over your meal. Some people don't have protocols. We wouldn't understand the protocol here. It was that the people who were providing the meal would be the host. They would take the bread. They would serve. But Jesus flipped that around and did it himself. The guest never does that. And yet here's this strange stranger talking as if the scriptures were about him, acting as if the table was his and the meal was his to bless. Luke recorded this action, I think, in a deliberate way, using the same set of sequence that he did for the Passover and the feeding of the 5,000. It's the same format. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Same thing in all three of those stories. You look in Luke chapter 24, 30 that we read, that's where it is again. And the very next thing Luke tells us is that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Verse 31, in an age when belief is contested and when religion is supposed to be private and not really interact with the world at all, you can, you can have your religion, just don't bring it to work, just don't bring it to the family, just don't bring it to the picnic, just, don't, just stay where you are with your private religion. That's the world we live in now. But it's this kind of hospitality that Jesus experienced that took it to them, and not in the sacred spaces. Here we are in the sacred space 
We put a sign out there. We say, y'all come. How many come? We have to go to them, in essence. That's what Jesus did. He exhibited this hospitality, and he showed us that we need to go to the other places and open ourselves up to them. That's what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. We have to offer this radical hospitality that Jesus offered. Uh, we have to act as the host of the meal, if you will. And even though it was not his, we have to find a way to those in the world to get to them and to stand with them in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their disillusionment, and in the midst of their fear, we take the story of Jesus and like bread or broken given to them, they now understand they don't need to have pain, disillusionment, or fear because there's someone who can take it away and his name is Jesus. We ourselves become the bread that is blessed, that is broken, that is given for their lives. Yes, even the life of the world. Three, to be given is to continue the circle of grace. There's a kind of cycle to givenness. Giving begets more giving. That's the cycle. The self-giving of God generates to a self-giving of us to others. He gives himself to us. We give ourselves to others. That's the cycle. Does this make God's giving not quite pure? I mean, is it quid pro quo? I do something for you. You do something for me. Does a true gift need to be one with no expectation of return? I think in the Western mind, we think like that. We think it's silly, maybe even coercive, manipulative. That that's the way I give something, I expect something in return. But it, it's not the way that Jesus acted. It wasn't so much that he expected something in return. It, it's what's called reciprocity. I do something and it unites us in a way so that you want to do something for me. You want to do something for me. That's different. Reciprocity is not giving to get. It's a way to reinforce a relationship. Actually, I think we discover that early in life. If a friend and you are playing and that friend lends you a toy and you play with it, there's something within us that says, I need to lend them one of my toys. And it unites your relationship and you become closer friends because you share reciprocity. I give, you give. I think it's part of social instinct. It's part of who we are. In the Old Testament, love for one's neighbors was a way to demonstrate one's love for God. Let's say that God blessed your crop or your flock or some abundance. You demonstrated your love for God by giving to those who were in need, who had less, who were poor. That was the way to return God's blessing to him. As a matter of fact, if you look in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17, it says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And I think it's the same motivation for Jesus to say in the negative way, As you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. There's something about reciprocity. I give, you give. It unites us in a relationship. At the heart of the gospel is the grace, a gift that is provoking, 
It provokes giving. That's what it does. God is gracious. He gives us gifts, even to those who don't deserve it. None righteous, no, not one. And yet he gives us grace. He gives to us. And those who receive God's good graces are, are to return them upward in praises and outward in service. I praise God for his goodness, and now I show that by serving others, the people around me. God's grace, I think, follows a pattern of reciprocity that's common to the gift of giving in the ancient world, but I think with two key elements, two things we need to recognize. Number one, God's grace is given to the unworthy. Remember that. No one fit, no one is fit to receive the grace God lavishes on us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Right? No one is fit to. God's grace is meant to generate that reciprocity in a wider circle. Benefiting those outside our immediate circle. I think that's why in hospitality in the old world that when people came who were strangers, God said, you are a stranger in a strange land. You will show other people hospitality. He widened the grace that he gave them as a people to interact with the other people around who had not experienced his grace. And then when people would say, why are you being this gracious? They could tell the story. I've seen it over and over again in disaster relief. We've gone over the United States. I like it many times. You, you look at these uh, people wearing Salvation Army clothes and crosses underneath it. You can see a Baptist emblem or symbol from a state convention because the people who do most of that work, quite frankly, are Southern Baptists. And then we're there, we clean up, we, we push things to the curb so it costs them less money. We help clean up through their houses and they'll eventually ask, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And we get to tell the story. We get to share the message of the gospel. I do this because Jesus did this for me. And that's why I'm here. You see, he said, freely you received and freely you should give. That is reciprocity. I think the givenness of Jesus, the bread of life, makes our givenness as a church, the body of Christ, possible. Because he gave, I can give. Because he came, I can go for others. I'm given for the sake of others and given for the sake of the world. The generosity of God is meant to create a generous community. He made us, not that we would encircle ourselves and sit on what we have and never share it, but that we would come here and motivate one another to go out into the world. Isn't that what the Great Commission is? Go ye therefore. Where? Everywhere. Not just here, not just local, not just state, not just nation. Everywhere, he said. It's an ever-increasing circle that we take the message of the gospel to people. So, in view of God's mercy, will you offer yourself to him today?
Will you let Jesus send you into the world as the Father sent him? Will you ask him to give you for the life of the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and thank you that you gave yourself to us. We are amazed and, and, and overwhelmed in a way that we cannot explain. But yet we see it. We see it how you reinstated Peter. It's not about motivation. It's not about mission. It's about our love for you. That's what drives us. Because I love Jesus, I will love others. I will share the story. I will go. When I might like to stay, I will go. When I want to be around just those I love dearly, I will go that I might expand that group of people who you want me to love. Help us understand that in this moment of decision. We pray in your holy name. Amen.